we live in a world on the edge of unbelievable turmoil. It's like a roller coaster just coming to the top of the, of the highest part of the trip and not quite knowing when it's going to start going down. If we look at the, the news and trends that we see every, almost every day, if not every week in Europe and Asia and the Middle East, if we see the, the moral decay, the signs of moral decay uh, all around us, and, of course, the gorilla in the corner, the massive deficit that's, that's looming over us. We, everywhere we look, it seems like everything's going, going downhill or just about to go downhill at a rapid pace. In Genesis chapter 49, in Genesis 49, we read that there were to be blessings prophesied for Joseph. Genesis chapter 49. We read verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. Verse 25, a couple of verses later, says, By the God of your Father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. We read of the blessings that were to be poured out upon Joseph at the end of the end of days. Verse 26, we read, The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph, and on, on the crown of the head of him who is separate from his brothers. So we've been recipients, as we understand, of what God promised, blessings beyond imagination. But the scriptures also warn of a time after the blessings upon Israel, that Israel would would fall and the world would turn upside down. We read in Jeremiah chapter 30, we read a phrase that is chilling because Jeremiah chapter 30 here in verse 7, for example, we jump into the, the context here, but he says, Alas, verse 7, Jeremiah chapter 30, for that day is great so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble. We read about a time before the final restoration of Israel and Judah, and it's called specifically a time of Jacob's troubles. And then we come to Matthew 24. We're familiar with Matthew 24 as a, a prophecy that charts human history and the sufferings of human history, but particularly at the, at the end of the age, the suffering that would come upon the world. Matthew chapter 24, we read verse 8. We back up a little bit. We read how Christ prophesied that many would come in his name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of, this is verse 6 now, wars and rumors of wars. He says, see that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So this is part of human history. Human history has been charted by, and you might say dated by wars and famines and all of these, these, these things. But he says, verse 7, for nation will, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. And we understand that at the end of the age, these Four categories are going to be represented in earnest. But he says, then he begins to talk about the end. He says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another, and then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. 
And because of lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. So we can see these last few verses are pointed towards the end, because that's how they're, that's the, the context here of, 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 of enduring to the end. So we, we see these, the beginning of sorrows and then things that are following that will be visited upon the world. Tribulation, brother against brother, of, uh, offense and false prophets. So brethren, we see here, you might describe this as the, as a spiritual danger zone that, uh, that we're, that we're reading about. As the world turns inside out, we are going to enter the most dangerous time in the history of the world. If we look at just a few verses later, verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. This will be for real, the most dangerous time ever upon the face of this earth. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. What will our world be like without electricity, without safe water, without food, with disease spreading uh, unchecked, with violence filling the land? What will our world be like? We don't, we experience tiny, tiny fragments of these things sometimes over the course, maybe in our life sometime. When we have the power go out, we had the power go out uh, at the headquarters building here this last week, and we, you experience you know, some disasters like you know, maybe losing a, a, a hard drive or something. I'm, I'm being very tongue-in-cheek here. We, know we experience just an inconvenience. We can't charge our cell phone because the power goes out. You know? We don't have a, a water for a, a brief time, uh, and you know, we're, what do we do? We have to make sure and fill the bathtub or whatever it might be. We, we experience little, tiny, tiny, little bits of inconvenience in our life. But what this talking about, is talking about here is a world that's unlike anything that, that we can, I think it's hard for us to even, frankly, even, even imagine. But this is the world that we're approaching. Dealing with the physical ordeal will, will be beyond what we have experienced or perhaps even dreamt of. But the spiritual challenges that we are facing may be much more dangerous. See, if you go to Matthew 24 here and just look at the the next verse, we read, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So we're challenged here. We're challenged to consider spiritual dangers, not just the physical. And that we are to have help, because if we look at Ephesians chapter 6, flip over to Ephesians chapter 6, we're we're reminded of the, the spiritual help that we are promised. We read in verse 10 of Ephesians 6, Finally, Paul said, My brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So we're, we are intended to be able to have armor given to us for spiritual protection because ultimately God is more concerned with our spiritual well-being than our physical well-being, isn't he? So we read verse, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. 
So he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And is there an evil day that compares with what we've just read about? So he says, continuing verse uh, verse 14, So stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirits. We're talking about spiritual dangers and spiritual armor and spiritual warfare. He says, verse 18, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So, the armor we're given, again, is for our spiritual protection. God's concerned about our spiritual well-being even more, as I said, than our physical well-being, frankly. But what are the spiritual snares then? What are the spiritual pitfalls as we approach the end of the age? Perhaps even today, from today into the end of the age. What are the spiritual minefields that we must navigate? How will we, sur- how will we survive these difficult days and not fall away from the body of Christ, turn our backs on God, and allow ourselves to be drawn into the vortex of the collapse of society. What are the dangerous snares in perilous times that we must face? So let's start with the small stuff as we focus on dangerous snares in perilous times. Let's start with the small stuff. Now, I'm going to begin with just asking you to step back for a second and think about our society today. Our society is, is segmented. It's, it's alienated. It's divided between, what, Republicans and Democrats, between blacks and whites and Latinos and other ethnic groups, between conservatives and liberals, between talk show hosts and the liberal media, right, between the ruling elite and the common man, between academic liberals and the rest of us, between millennials versus baby boomers, teens versus parents, me too versus not me, and don't forget men versus women. So wherever we go, everywhere we look, it, it, what it, the emphasis is on the divisions in our society. It's crazy out there, isn't it? Well, and it's exceedingly easy to slip into the fray to get drawn into the vortex of the details, to to allow ourselves to be distracted, to, to be consumed, frankly, to be consumed by the frustrating contentions that, that swirl around us. But, you know, in this fog of conflict, is this anything new, really? Because sometimes we can begin to feel sorry for ourselves, like, oh, it's never been this bad. Can't believe all the challenges that we have in our difficult times. Have you ever read about the diatribe between some of our colonial leaders? Ever read about, for example, uh, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and the contention that was that they uh, shared for many years? At the end, they came around to be friends, but there was a time when President Adams, again, remember Thomas Jefferson was his, his vice president. But he was accused by Thomas Jefferson of having, this is a quote now, having a hideous Hermaphrodi- her- hermaphroditical, I'm sorry, hermaphrodi- 
hermaphrodite. Anyway, like a hermaphrodite, okay? A character which has neither, this is the quote now, neither the force and firmness of a man nor the gentleness and sensibility of a woman. That was put publicly into, into, into papers, okay? Into, into this diatribe against, against uh, Adams. And in return, Adams, again, now we're talking about a president versus a vice president in a presidential uh, election year, okay? Uh, in return, Adams' men called, called Vice President Jefferson a mean-spirited, low-lived fellow, and it went on, it went on from there. Adams was labeled a, a fool, a hypocrite, a criminal, a tyrant, and Jefferson was branded a, a, a weakling, an atheist, a libertine, and a coward, and these accusations flew back and forth. Just a few years later, after this, on July 11th, 1804, that was in 1800, in 18, on July 11th, 1804, Alexander Hamilton, who was the Secretary of the Treasury, and Aaron Burr, now you know what I'm talking about, who's a sitting Vice President at that time, fought a duel to the, to the death. Right across from the Lincoln Tunnel. Well, Lincoln Tunnels wasn't there at the time, but if from any of our New Yorkers, uh, you know where the Lincoln Tunnel is, and right across the river, on the other side of the river, they fought a duel. And, and actually, as it turned out, Alexander Hamilton, Hamilton suffered a, a mortal blow. That's the contention that existed in our early colonial days. A world of contention. Let me go, let me, let me just go forward a little bit because about a half a century later, a north-south conflict became so all-consuming in our country that it actually resulted in a, in a, in a civil war. You're familiar with that. Thinking about contentions and living with contention, the challenges, but also the fact that we, we, we're facing something that is, that is part of human history. If you look back a little bit, uh, a little bit further into history, we come to Matthew chapter 22. Let's go back to Matthew 22. Because it seems like whether we look around or look back, we have a proclivity in human society to be inflamed with, with conflict and, and, and strife. And we're not immune because we're part of it. We are some of these labels that I mentioned before that get drawn into, whether we say the words or think the thoughts, get drawn into conflict and frustration. But it's not, it's not something new to us, whether we're a baby boomer or we're the silent generation or generation X or what, what, or whether we're more or less conservative or more or less liberal or more or less academic or elite, we're Republican or Democratic. We have those, those parts of us that are, that are part of what we are. We can get drawn into it. But do we think it was any different than Christ's day? Was it any different then? Let's go to Matthew 22, as I said. Matthew chapter 22. And we read a little bit about what Christ faced. Matthew 22 and verse, and verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent him to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are in, that you are, uh, you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? We go just 
down the page a little bit to verse 23. The same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, and they go to give the scenario. And then he says, verse uh, 27, 28, Then, therefore, in the resurrection, they ask, Whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. So we read here how the Sadducees, just a little snapshot of how the Sadducees and Pharisees each wanted to draw him into their circle, or at least get him into a corner, one or the other. And they, and they were at odds. Now let's, let's take a moment to think about this. And I, as I'm setting the stage talking about the political scenario back in the colonial times, the Civil War, the time of Christ, I'm getting to my point, okay? So we'll, this is all about point number one, the dangerous snare in a dangerous time, but I think you'll see it emerge as, as we go forward. So let me fill the picture in a little bit. Let me fill the picture of what was happening at the time of Christ. The Sadducees. How about the Sadducees? The Sadducees were the great pragmatics of the day. Um, they were wealthy lay nobles, uh, priests, aristocrats. Uh, they sought to conserve their power through compromise with Rome. Uh, most of the members of the Sanhedrin were, were Sadducees. Uh, when we read in Acts chapter 5, verse 17, about uh, the, the Sadducees, we're reading about those who are around the high priest Caiaphas. And the, that, that was, those were Sadducees. Uh, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And they were at the top of the societal pecking order of the day. They were concerned more with present-day affairs than on um, the specul- speculation verses uh, in regard to the life to come. So they were, you might say, old-fashioned. Uh, they emphasized the Pentateuch, not the Mishnah, the, the, the laws that were, were added, these uh, dozens and dozens of laws that were added. They emphasized the, the Pentateuch because they were old, seen as old-fashioned. They were the main opponents of Jesus at his trial because they saw Jesus as, as threatening their power and their status. Sadducees, Pharisees, they were the idealists of Jewish society. Most of the scribes, the sort of theologians of the day, were, were Pharisees. Uh, they sought to meticulously follow the Torah, uh, they didn't believe in compromise with the Romans. I'm talk, talking with a broad, a broad brush here, but understand what were what the scenario was here. They didn't believe in compromise with the Romans. They they were also did not believe in revolutionary activities. Now, from their perspective, Jesus seemed to sort of relativize the law. What about others? Well, there were others. How about the Essenes? That rings a bell. The Essenes. They were the idealists. I'm sorry. They were. They were. Uh, they thought they they sought to withdraw rather from um, uh, from the, the 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 average the everyday life and that was their way of dealing with Roman occupation. So they would withdraw to to uh, to monastery like settings. Uh, they were the you might say the hippies of the day, opting out of mainstream society. That's what the, the how the Essenes handle things. Uh, for example, Qumran. You've heard about Qumram, the, uh, the, through the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were, this was a, a community that was composed of Essenes. They lived an ascetic life. Uh, they were waiting for God's apocalyptic intervention in human history. But there were others. How about the Zealots? The Zealots believed in armed revolution. They advocated armed revolution. If you look at the history of the Maccabees, you read about the Zealots and their whole history of what, of what was important to them, what they thought should be done. Uh, Simon the Zealot, we read about, and uh, see, a, movement, a member of this movement formerly, likely. 
How about other, other names of other segments of the religious, of the religious milieu of the time? Well, you had the others and the nuns. You had, for example, um, Hanina Bendosa, who is a famous miracle worker and sort of hermit-like sage. You had Abanus, also you'll see his name if you read about some of the other elements within the, within the religious fraction society of the time. And my personal favorite, Honi the Circle Drawer. And so he was also a leader of a certain uh, a, a number of people. So you have these different segments of society. You see where I'm going yet? Not quite? Well, let's go on. Let's go on. Because you also have political segments. So understand, remember, Herod the Great ruled about the time of Christ up to the time that Christ was born. He was half Jewish, but he was detested for his cooperation with Rome. Uh, he was called a friend of Rome or looked upon as a friend of Rome. Uh, he ruled, you might say, Palestine plus some Gentile areas nearby. His area was important because it was between Syria and, and Egypt, and Rome maintained legions, uh, legions in both, in both Syria to the north and, and Egypt. But they did not in Herod's area during his lifetime. Now, after Christ's birth, Herod died not long after Christ's birth, his, his kingdom was divided into five different parts. It was divided into non-Jewish sections and Jewish sections. Bear with me. Making a point here. Okay, so stay with me here. Get the sense of what was going on. Because as I'm, as, as I'm talking and explaining to you what society was like, recognize, brethren, that when Christ walked the streets of Jerusalem, everybody wasn't just all happy as Jews, and there were some little bit of different ideas in one camp or another. There were people who were willing to die for their beliefs and were very serious about their beliefs and were trying to pull him and his disciples into the mix. Is that happening today? Can we get caught up? Can we get caught up in causes today? And without thinking about it, actually be representing, be reflecting a part of society because we're so mixed up in it. In that sense, brethren, we're no different. The time of Christ was also a very demanding, a very contentious, a very fractious time as well. The time, as I said, here after Herod died, his kingdom was divided into uh, a couple of two parts, non-Jewish and Jewish. Philip received some of the parts. Salome received some other. That was, she was Herod's sister. Philip was his son. Uh, the Jewish Syria received part of it. In the Jewish segments, Galilee was put under control of his son, Herod Antipas. We read about uh, Herod Antipas in, in Luke 2, for example, where the Herod to which is who's referred to there is, is Herod Antipas. Um, he was referred to as by the title of Tetrarch. So Galilee was under his control. Judea, Idumea, Samaria to the south was under Herod Archelaus. Now, he was the ethnarch. He was also he was called ethnarch. He was the son of Herod the Great as well. He was deposed in 6 A.D. He was so brutal in his exercise of power in Jerusalem that Rome actually removed him. So you can imagine the antipathy and the and the, the hatred of of him. Uh, they actually that's why his that area that he ruled over was turned into a Roman province because of his brutality and the reaction by, by Jews. So the Romans, after they deposed him, they stationed a 3,000-man uh, legion there in 
in, in, in that area. And Pontius Pilate was then established as prefect. That's where Pontius Pilate comes on the, on, on, on the scene. And he relied on local leaders, particularly the priests. The high priest Caiaphas ruled Jerusalem in day-to-day affairs. From about 18 to 36 A.D. Uh, was, was the time we're looking at with Herod Archelaus, and, um, and 10 years of that was with Pontius Pilate. So you can begin to see a little bit more about the fractions of rulership, leadership, dominance, religious dominance, but we're not done because there were other movements that were going on at the same time. All you have to do is read about the history of the Maccabees and hear of their influence and people who up to the time of Christ were still influenced by by the the movement of the Maccabees, and they were a continuing problem. Um, For example, Pilate himself was threatened by some of the ideological uh, followers of the the ways of the Maccabees, so he actually, as it turned out, he was deposed for overacting to uh, a a Samaritan messianic outbreak uh, a few years down the line that was all part of this antagonism towards that was stirred by the Maccabean revolt that happened over the years, of course, between the Testaments, you might say. Um, You look at some other continuing problems. For example, in Acts chapter 5 and verse 36, Gamaliel refers to someone called Thutis and Judas the Galilean. Well, we're reading about individuals who were, were, were cultivating a following, this is in Acts chapter 5, verse 36 and 37. There's just a passing aside mention. Here's another one. Well, let's look, let's look at this one. Mark chapter 15. You're familiar with this one. Mark chapter 15. Remember this name? Mark chapter 15 and verse 6. Now, we see here verse 6. Now, at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to, to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. And it goes on, and we read about how ultimately uh, uh, he was released. Where did he come from? What rebellion was it talking about? Well, again, another slice of the political environment of, that was that was part of daily life for citizens in the area in which Christ walked up and down with his disciples. Ultimately, there was another one called the Egyptian. If you look at, at, uh, at, at the records of this time, one called the Egyptian. According to Josephus, he had magical powers, and he had an enormous following among common people. Um, he, led, uh, a mount, uh, he led a mass of people up the Mount of Olives, uh, looking down on the temple across the way. Uh, the Romans sent a cavalry and brutally dispersed them, and he escaped. The Egyptian, you read about at this time in history. And then finally, last one I'll mention, Judas the Galilean, another famous uh, leader of a contingent of followers. He was eventually captured and executed, and uh, so that was the end of him. So you had these other elements. How about, the, how about geography? How about geography? Would you realize that Galilee was separated into two different areas? We read about Galilee, and we read about Christ walking up to Galilee, and we read about miracles and things that happened. But Galilee itself was divided into two, roughly two general areas, the northern Galilee and southern Galilee. The north was typically more conservative, um, more remote, no, no major cities, and they were more lenient toward 
images and, and, and decoration, religious decoration. Whereas the South, there were more cities. Um, they were, there were more roads. There was, there were, there was trade with area beyond. So they were more open to, to change. They were a little bit more, you might say, liberal versus the conservative North. This Nazareth, by the way, was in Southern Galilee. So, so we, again, one more element. If you've been taking, uh, tedious notes, you've added about, what, uh, 12, 15 different elements in what was happening at the time of Christ. Now, most Jews did not belong to a party, actually. They, most Jews did not belong to one of these groups, but they were influenced by different groups. They were influenced, and most actually had some sort of a, a hope in the future, and they expected God to intervene and to restore Israel to peace and prosperity. Uh, not all expected God to send a son of David to overthrow the Romans, but some did. Uh, actually, the Qumran sect believed that there would be a great war against Rome and that they would emerge victorious, and finally they would uh, a final blow would be struck by the, Michael, by the angel Michael and finally God himself, and they would be saved. So that's what they believed. And yet, with all that, Matthew 17, Matthew 17, What did Christ do with all this this blur, this fog? What did Christ do? How did Christ handle it? How did Christ approach the scenario? Matthew 17. And we read here in verse, let's pick it up in verse 22. Now, while they were staying... In Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. We come to verse 24. And when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay temple tax? Now, I hope that you see that this question and others like this were more loaded than at on the surface, than at first glance. Because they wanted to know where he fit. where Which group was he following? What was he going to say? Was he going to be on, on board with them? Or was he with one of the other groups? And so he said, verse, yeah, verse 25, yes. And when he'd come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? And Peter said to him, From strangers. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. He said, pay the tax. I'm not going to get in the middle of this. He deferred to the ruling authorities, and he did not attack them. He did not blast them. Yes, he spoke in a blunt manner to religious authorities, whether it would be whether it was the the officials of the temple or whether it was the Romans, but what did he say? Let's go back to verse, chapter five. What about the Romans, who dominated who dominated life in Jerusalem and through that through that middle part of the of the area we're talking about, and where they had their legions and they exercised absolute control? Uh, Matthew chapter five. 
and verse 38. He said, for example, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. What is this talking about? You know what this is talking about. It's talking about the fact that the Roman soldiers could demand that their pack, their gear be carried and uh, a citizen could do nothing about it. He didn't. He said, "Don't don't fight it. Look, this is it's it's not the time to be quote patriotic. This is the time to cooperate with the authorities as as is required." Let's go to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. The first point that this is all part of. I'll go ahead and give you the the very the specific point, and that's this. That's this. To avoid Dangerous snares in perilous times. Number one, don't get drawn into the vortex of the details, brethren. Don't get drawn. Don't get suckered in. Don't get drawn into the vortex of the details of the fog of fighting in our, in our society today. I showed you, this is part of human history, I showed you that during the time of Christ, that the scenario was replete with opportunity to get drawn in, and Christ did not. He resisted, and he stood on a different, on a different, uh, a different premise. Matthew chapter 26. I think it's interesting if you look at some some commentaries, and I think it's a bit un, unclear. We can't read. We have to be careful of the. We can't read too many motives into things. But it is interesting if we look and see what happened here with Judas. Matthew chapter 26 and verse verse 14. We read here verse 14. One of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Now you go on and you read as we, we go about his betrayal, in verse 47, for example, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayal had, betrayer had given him them a sign, saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one that sees him, and he went ahead. Some commentaries who, who put forward the premise that perhaps Judah was try, Judas was trying to force Christ's hand. We do see this element among the, among the disciples of, of trying to say, Christ, aren't you going to do something about that? In fact, if we keep reading, we see it, don't we? Because verse 51, suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We reading that from today's perspective, we think, okay, wow, he was defending him. But Understanding the, 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 the antagonisms and the frustrations and the desire on the part of many people to fight against the Romans, and we're following Christ even with the idea that he would lead them against the Romans, do, do you understand that there's more to it than meets the eye? In fact, if we read, if we, if we look forward, we see, jump forward to, to Acts, for example, we see the disciples still had the impression, it seems, that he was going to usher in the kingdom. So there was this pressure on him to think, action! Come on, Christ, action! 
throw off the Romans, lead a movement, get frustrated, get angry, and and jump into the fray. Acts chapter 1, we see here, Verse 4, being assembled together with them after his crucifixion and resurrection, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, Judas was not alone in in, in thinking, let's let's stir things up, let's get going. I don't... Maybe we're it's, it's, it's stretching it. We don't know what was everything that was going in Judah's head, but we do know what was going on in the, uh, the disciples' mind. You know, we can feel like today the government is out to get us. Sometimes you might hear that. Well, you know the government. You know the government. They're they're doing this and they're doing that. They're behind this and they're behind that. The government, they, the big they. Um, you may have heard ideas floating around about how the government. Uh, was responsible for 9-11 and for the Twin Towers being blown up. Maybe you, maybe you think that. Uh, these ideas are, uh, float around. You know, with Christ, actually the government was out to get him, wasn't it? <laughs> There's no suppositions there. The government was out to get him and ultimately killed him. And yet, what was his action and reaction to all the things that happened to him? Well, let's go to John chapter 18. You know, really, truly, uh, uh, Christ, there were, things were happening that were, that were you know, meant to uh, destroy Christ. We read in Revelation 12 about how Satan, we read in this, this whole section of how Satan was intent on destroying the seed of of, of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that would ultimately bring the church into the New Testament age. Herod did kill all the boy babies, didn't he? That, that actually did happen. And yet Christ did not dwell on paranoia, and he did not get uh, fixated on what, quote, the government was, was doing. What did he say? John chapter 18, as you read of his trial... Pilate, verse 33, entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, verse 36. This is the resounding platform that Jesus Christ uttered again and again and again. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Can we have that as, as, as the resounding banner in our minds every time someone tries to suck us and draw us in to this, the debate about what's going on in politics and in our society today? Can we, can we, can we have this echo in our minds? My kingdom is not of this world. I'm not biting. I'm not going to get drawn into it. Because there are people out there whose goal is to stir people up, to stir up the emotions of people, 
And frankly, many times they benefit from it, whether financially or politically, they benefit from it. And what do we get? Frustration, anger, upset, and we watch more TV or listen to more radio or read more articles or whatever about the same thing because it's almost addictive, isn't it? We get sucked into the, the stuff and we get angry and upset and, and it's, it's caustic. But instead, if we can say, my kingdom is not of this world, then we're going to be following the example of, of Christ. You know, the Christ's disciples actually were, were even sort of caught up with this mentality of fixing the world and, and how they could do better, because that's what's played upon. Let's go to Matthew chapter 18. When, when, we're, when, when though, there are those who try to draw us into this vortex of angst and animosity and all of, of today, what are they trying to do? They're trying to play on our mentality that we could do better if, what, if our decisions or what we think is best will be put into place, then things would be right, right? I mean, isn't that what they're playing on, really? Well, that's a pretty familiar theme, isn't it? Because Matthew chapter 18, Christ dealt with that as well with his disciples. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the, in the kingdom of heaven? Because, as you read here in other places, they were sort of concerned with who would be sitting at his right hand and who would be a leader and, and all of that. It's a, it's a common human attribute to think we can, if only we could, if we could give the answers, we would, we would straighten things out. That's what's played on by, by demagogues who stir, stir us up. But he said, no, it's about being changed. Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted, unless you are changed, unless you think differently, unless you don't think competitively, you don't get filled with bitterness and angst about what's happening in the world. You can think beyond that, he said, unless you are changed and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Christ taught the importance of working with individuals, whatever background they come from, whether they be. Frankly, we see examples, for example, in in Matthew chapter 9, of him working with publicans. And the Pharisees were, were appalled. Why does your master eat with publicans and sinners, they said. So what, what Christ did is he, 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 he worked with people. He interacted with people apart from the, all the stuff that went around. That's what we do, isn't it? You know, when we, when we preach the gospel, we preach, and when we interact with people, we preach, to, we talk to them. We, we try to talk with the individual, not all the, 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 the imagery and all of the, the baggage and the labels that are part of the world around us. Christ did not get drawn into the detail, details of, of the day. Let's go to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. You know, we can mistake getting into current events and news and social issue. We can, and, and being interested in all these things in politics, we can mis- mistake it as, as simply watching. We're simply watching. Well, we're just watching world events. You know, we can say we don't vote, but we can participate very to a very great degree in the world's political system. Ever thought about that? So, well, I don't. No, I'm not into politics because I don't vote. 
course, all you do is talk about politics and how you hate this one and this one and this one's terrible and this one's great, only this. And, but, but I don't vote, so I'm not into politics. Oh, really? What does it mean to be into politics? Is it just casting a vote? You don't cast a vote, so you're not into politics? We're sort of kidding ourselves, aren't we? If we're not careful, we can be very much into politics even though we don't vote. And it happens. It can happen in our conversations. We can get drawn into it after church. We can get drawn into it with other people that we, before we know it, I mean, we're, we're no less political than our, our neighbor because we're spouting off our ideas just as if we had, we were not governed by the principle that Christ taught to not be, not, not be, be caught up in that, but instead our kingdom being the kingdom of God. We can be into politics without voting. But Matthew, Luke chapter 21, Luke 21, I just want to read this a little bit so we can challenge you to, to think about, about this. Luke chapter 21 and verse 34. Take heed to yourselves then. We, we're coming on the heels of what we read back in Matthew 24 about the end of the age. And we say, we see here verse 30, verse 34 of, of Luke 21 now, which is, tags this part onto it, but take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell in the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore, and pray always, that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. We can, if we're not careful, we can use this directive as a, a pass, you might say a passport, or a ticket to get consumed by the things of this, of this world. Because we're just watching. No matter that, you know, all we have, well, put it this way, do we get extra brownie points from God if we have the, the news channel on all day? Well, I'm watching. Is that, does that make us more righteous to be watching news all the time? Not necessarily. In fact, if you think about it, certainly watching the unfolding of prophetic events is part of what we're supposed to be doing. No doubt about that. But if you look at what this word is all about, frankly, pull up uh, Thayer's, for example, Thayer's lexicon, and you'll see words like this. Be, be awake. Be sleepless. Be circumspect, be attentive, be ready. Um, it talks about, it's, it has a sense of being intent on a, a thing or, or, or vigilance. And it's an image that's drawn from shepherd with his flock. In other words, the sense is being aware of what's going on, but more than that, it's having a wakeful frame of mind. Here's, here's the last part of, um, of Thayer's explanation. The group of synonyms is completed by another Greek word which signifies a state untouched by any slumberous or beclouding influences, and thence one that is guarded against advances of drowsiness or bewilderment. Thus it becomes a term for wariness against spiritual dangers and beguilements. And you know what verse is connected? 1 Peter chapter 5. Let's go there and see what it says. 1 Peter chapter 5. We're talking about spiritual dangers in spiritual snares in perilous times and watching for those particularly first peter chapter 5 we already talked about at the beginning how there is 
a being who would love to see us fall, to catch us in spiritual snares. That's what we watch for, those spiritual snares. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, the same family of words, be sober, be watchful for what? What are we supposed to be primarily, first and foremost, watchful for? What's happening in the world? No, watching the unfolding prophetic events, that's, that is right to do. But the watching that we're, we're reading about here is watching that we are not caught in the snares of Satan the devil. He says, be sober, be vigilant or watchful because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So what do we watch for? We watch for bitterness. We watch for the root of vanity. We watch for selfishness. We watch for being consumed with our own way of thinking in contrast to obedience to God. And you know what? If you think about it, brethren, if we think back over the past few decades, there were we have friends and brethren who were very dedicated news watchers who fell prey to snares of Satan the devil and were caught up and are off in a totally different direction today. They were deceived. And yet they were professional news watchers. So it's not just about the news. It's about being watchful and being being careful. We don't get caught up in what's around us. That's, That's what we're supposed to focus on. So if we go back to Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll, then we'll move, we'll move on here. Ephesians chapter 6. This, this thought is, is added to right here because Ephesians chapter 6, we read about the, the armor of God, and in verse 18, after the armor is delineated here, verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication of the Spirit, being watchful to this end. To what end? To the end that we not be overcome by the snares of Satan the devil. So watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as he ought to speak. He had the right perspective, didn't he? He had a perspective that focused on what Christ said of, of his kingdom not being of this world, but instead being growing in understanding and growing in the ability to resist the snares of Satan. So point being, if you want to boil it down, Proverbs 26 gives a great proverb. Proverbs 26, it bears directly on what we're talking about here for this first, the first half of, uh, of the sermon here. Proverbs 26. And verse 17. He who passes by and meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a dog by the ears. Don't take a dog by the ears. Don't get caught up in the vortex of the details of the, of the fog of conflict in our society today. Here's another snare that can affect us. We'll look at, at two others before we conclude. Here's another snare. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah chapter 29. Now we can see this snare from Isaiah 
and, and it gives us an example of the ancient prophets and how they, they cried out at the impending doom, but they also did something else. Isaiah chapter 29. We read here in verse 13, Therefore the Lord said, we're familiar with this because it was quoted by Christ, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men, therefore, behold, I will do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work, and not in a good way, and a, and a, and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent man shall be hidden. He talks about how he, what he would bring upon those who would only be hypocritical in their worship of him. You can read here uh, verse 15 and 16. Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel fall from the Lord, far from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us and who knows? Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? So he's... We're reading of, a, of, a, of a, a criticism and a condemnation of those who would draw, be filled with hypocrisy. And we see examples of this, but there's something that follows. Verse 17, it is, verse 17, Is it not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest? And that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and in the poor among men shall rejoice. Sorry, and the poor among men shall rejoice. So, what do we see here? We see something that's mirrored a number of times just in the next few chapters, where we see a condemnation of the, you might say, the impending doom, but we see that there's more to it than just that. The other side of that is a very hopeful message of the good things to come. And we see this here, for example, in chapter 30, verses, verse, beginning in verse 8. Now go, write it before them on a tablet, and note it on a scroll, that it may be for time to come forever and ever, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right Write things, speak to us smooth things, prophesy deceits, get out of the way, turn aside from the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to seize from before us. So therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this world, this word, and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and he shall break it like the breaking of the potter's vessel, which is broken in pieces. He shall not spare, so there shall not be found among its fragments a shard to take fire from the hearth or to take water from the cistern. We find... It's a very powerful statement against the rebelliousness of Israel. But we come down to verse 18, and we see the other, the other part of the message. Verse 18, Therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you, and therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are the, all those who wait for him. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. And when he hears it, he will answer you. 
And then we have this very familiar passage, though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the waters of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore, but your eyes shall see your teachers. Your ears shall hear a word behind you, and, and, and so on. So we read here of the two parts. Now, what am I getting at? Second snare, second snare to avoid, a dangerous snare in a perilous time is this. Don't make the impending doom the main message. Because it's not. It's not. Now, when we look at the world around us, we can become consumed and we can also become discouraged and frustrated and we can then become angry because we see who's causing sometimes some of the doom. But we, we can become consumed by the bad, you know? We can become consumed by the bad. Prophet Isaiah, he, he was willing to confront and real, willing to condemn the bad but he always said, and, but by the way, there's something better coming. There's something better coming. Let's look at another example. Isaiah 34. Isaiah 34. Uh, you could basically read the whole chapter here because it's a chapter that talks about the nations and how they would, they would uh, receive the indignation of the Lord. Words like verse... Uh, five, he says, my, my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom and on the people of my curse for judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made overflowing with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of the rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. You're reading about God's punishment on these nations. But yet, we also should read the next chapter. Because the next chapter is one of the most positive and uplifting and encouraging chapters in the book of Isaiah. Verse 30, chapter 35 and verse, and verse 1. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. And it continues in that, in that vein. So to avoid another snare then, as I said, following Isaiah's example, don't make the impending doom the main message, the main thing that consumes us, because it's not. It's not. Repentance is the key. It's always illustrated, always uh, brought into the mix, both for Israel and for the world. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter chapter 14, for example. With repentance will come the mercy of the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 14. We're, we're jumping into this section as well. I want to... Uh, where we're reading about the idolatry of Israel, but I want to focus on verse 6. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, here's the solution. Repent, turn away from your idols, and turn your faces away from all your abominations. So he gives Ezekiel here and in other places, he gives the, you might say, the transition. He says, these bad things are happening, but are going to happen. But look, the answer is repent, change, and there's, there are better things to come. That's the message again and again and again in the Scriptures. Verses 10, it says, They shall bear their iniquity. The punishment of the prophet shall be the same as the punishment of the one who inquired. 
that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me, nor be profaned any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people and I may be their God, says the Lord God. So he's, he says there's a point to this. The bad, the gloom, the doom is coming for a reason. It's, it's not all there is. It's not all there is. There's, there's more coming. And here he says, verse 12, The word of the Lord came again to be saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I'll stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. But then as you go through, ultimately, you see, uh, again, verse 23. I'm just jumping down to the end where we read about how they would be comforted. In verse 22, concerning the disaster that I brought upon Jerusalem, all that I brought upon it. And they will comfort you when you see their ways and their doings, and you shall know that I have done nothing without cause, that I have done it, says the Lord God. Point being, again, look, God's the, the doom is punishment that will be followed by, by mercy. Again, it's appropriate that we acknowledge the direction of our world and the fulfillment of prophecy. But we can, we can too easily have our, you might say, our focus filter set on bad news. You know, where we're looking for the bad news. And we're, we're alert to the bad news. Is the bad news occupying our minds so much that there's no room for good news? Matthew chapter 24, if you look at Matthew 24 where we began, notice something here. Matthew 24, if you read through the chapter to the end of the chapter, you see it's immediately followed by what? Chapter 25, the first and second parables are about what? About the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God to come is what is, 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 we're, we're heading towards. I'm not going to read the parables, but this is, this is where, where Christ was pointing their attention. And he was doing so from his first words to his last words. Matthew chapter 4, what do we read as he begins to preach? He went about Galilee. We read Matthew 24 verse 23. If you want to jot it down. He taught in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, not the gospel of bad news. You know, we don't, we don't announce our, our, our program on television or on the Internet that by saying the bad news of the days before the coming kingdom of God. Do my best Kevin Lee imitation here. That maybe didn't work so well, but we don't, we don't announce it as the bad news before the good news. No, we, we're, we're pointing towards the good news. Yes, the bad news is part of the process. It's the precursor, but it's not the message. It's not the message. Matthew chapter 4, I mentioned his first words where he, he taught and he encouraged people about the good kingdom to come. Matthew 24 here in verse uh, 14. What are we supposed to be about? Matthew chapter 24, verse 14 and this gospel of the kingdom, not the gospel of the bad news and the doom and gloom, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. There is going to come a time, brethren, where there will be no good news. And the news that we have will be all that the world will have to hang on to. The hope that we can give will be like this this, 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 this candle, this, this light that is the only good news that people can see. 
if what we read is true in the scriptures, that things are going to become very, very difficult. So our focus needs to be set and cemented on, as we read in Matthew chapter 6, right? The gospel, the kingdom, the kingdom should be our focus. Seek you first the kingdom. Think on these things as opposed to getting caught up in the doom because the impending doom is not the main message. Let's go to Matthew chapter, well, let's go to Romans chapter 6. I mentioned uh, Matthew 6 where, just briefly, uh, Romans chapter 16. Paul took on this same, the same pattern. Romans chapter 16, where he focused beyond even his chains and his afflictions. Oh, he mentioned them, the, the problems he had, and he certainly mentioned uh, the, the difficulties to come, but he, he focused people's attention on the good to come. Romans chapter 16 and verse 25, the last few verses, your last couple of verses in his letter to the Romans. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel, my good news, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. To God alone, wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. He pointed their attention on the good things to come. Last point I want to make just in the last 10, 15 minutes here, and there's another snare. There's another snare that we can we can get caught up in, and that is this. We can forget what we've learned and where we've learned it. So third challenge here is don't forget what we've learned and where we've learned it. And I say that because a snare is, is being forgetful. And something I saw as a, as a contrast between the modern culture here in America and the, and the culture in much of Asia when I lived in Asia, that, that is the... You might say the age of cultural consciousness. In other words, we have a, a limited um, depth of field historically here in our land. And we do have a comparatively brief national history, so compared to many nations of the world, and, and perhaps that's part, that's part of the reason. But in, in Thailand, if you go to any souvenir shop or art gallery or just look at the logos on the food packaging, there's an image that pops up again and again and again. And it's, it's an image of, of two men in full battle array uh, in an elephant duel. The elephants are rearing up on one elephant. The, the black prince of Thailand was called the black prince. Now he had become king. He's King Naresuan. And the other, on the other elef- elephant, it's Mingi Swa, who was the, um, the, the, the crown prince of Burma. And so this Thai prince is defending his land and the capital city of Ayutthaya against this Burmese crown prince from, from Burma. And the image is everywhere. It's, it's the great battle of uh, Ayutthaya. You'll, you'll see it if you walk, or if you, as I say, go to shops or whatever. And, and it's, it was, happened not far from uh, Supanburi. You still see the images today, but it happened in 1593. A long, long time ago. A long cultural memory that stamped this event in their history. Um, 
in many corners of the world, it's not alone in Thailand, many corners of the world, the cultural consciousness of peoples has a, a depth of field, you might say, that goes back a long time. Why is, so, why is Russia so paranoid towards Europe? Well, it's, it's not just that two million people died in the largest battle of World War II in 1942 and 43. It was the largest battle, the battle for uh, Stalingrad. You know, it's a very real memory that goes back 130 years earlier when the largest army ever known to have been uh, assembled in the history of warfare up to that point marched across Poland into Russia under Napoleon. Napoleon uh, was defeated. Russia Russia defended herself at the cost of 400,000 casualties. So is it any wonder that Russia is a little bit paranoid about their homeland. And talk about concern, Poland is even more so. Is it any wonder that Poland has a memory of concern about neighbors because they've been the battleground between Europe and Russia going back even further? So, again, we're talking about things that happened now thousands of years ago, hundreds, and in this, in, in one case, for example, uh, was reading one quote from an Arab a professor who talked about the Crusader armies that uh, massacred, according to the, according to what they say, a hundred thousand people when they took Jerusalem—men, women, and children. The Crusaders massacred of the of the uh, of, of the Arabs. Well, that was a thousand years ago, but it's still stamped in the the, the mind of uh, Middle Eastern peoples. But you know, it's funny—the people of God have a record of forgetfulness. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter four. Deuteronomy chapter 4. God warned against forgetfulness. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 9. He told Israel through Moses, Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and to your grandchildren. And the story then of Israel is a story of forgetting, isn't it? You go through the judges, the kings, and you see Israel again and again for forgetting. You know, we can be frustrated with our, our current scenario. We can be, I think, concerned, maybe not so much here, but a lot of our congregations have a small number of people, 10, 11, 12 people, perhaps, 20 people, 20, 30 people, but sometimes very small groups of people. And it can be frustrating. It can be discouraging. It can be, it can be concerning. And when you don't see new people coming, you don't see the congregation growing, it can be very discouraging. Or perhaps as a single or a young people, you think, where are other young people? Who am I going to marry? Who am I going to have as, 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 as friends? It can be very discouraging, very frustrating. You know, we've got Lots of things to be frustrated about, don't we? But the reality is this. The scriptures tell us, don't forget what we've learned and where it's, where it's come from. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. The frustrations, they need to be pushed aside for the reality of the fact that we have the truth. We have the opportunity to be part of the body of Christ. And we can't allow ourselves to be snared by our frustrations and discouragement 
about not having more people, others in one way or another, to actually pull us out of the body and pull us into a place where we go into a tailspin, turn our backs on, on God, and are not part of his, of his, uh, of his family. Second Timothy chapter 1, we find in the, in the New Testament multiple places where Paul, for example, as well as Christ, re- reminded people to, to hold fast. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. You know where I'm going here. He says in verse 13, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Hold fast. In 2 Thessalonians, he says, "Hold fast, stand fast and hold the traditions that you were taught. Don't forget what we've learned and where we've learned it from. You know, we have a history, we have a panorama, you might say, of, of faithful, true Christians who have held fast from the days of Polycarp and Polycrates all the way through the centuries between then and today, day in, day out. People known and unknown. Some of the names we know, but many, many thousands we don't. And yet they have have laid a groundwork. They've continued to carry the torch over these years. And even some within the last 100 years, even the last 50 years, who have been forgotten, who sacrifices for the work, to keep the work going, to spread the gospel, to preach the gospel, whose sacrifices have been forgotten. And are not talked about today. We don't, we don't know who they were anymore. They're not in our, our consciousness. But their reward is sure. And we need to maintain a loyalty to our brethren who have been used by God to keep the flame going through the centuries. We can get concerned and we can get frustrated with our, our current concerns so much that we, that we forget the value of what we learned and from where we learned it. Revelation chapter chapter 3. Prove what is good. Prove what is right. Prove the truth. Prove where God's body is. And then hold fast. Hold fast to other dear brethren who, who have conviction to the same principles and values. And don't allow ourselves to be caught up in any of the distractions that are around us, brethren, because... Revelation chapter 3, we read, there will come a time when Jesus Christ will return to his faithful, whether in the grave or whether still alive. Revelation chapter 3, this is a message that, that is actually reiterated to all the, all the different eras of the church. But we see Revelation chapter 3 and verse uh, not eight, let's begin in verse 8, I know your works, he's talking to the the Philadelphian era, here he says, See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. And verse 10, again, because you've kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which should come upon the whole world. So we read, there's a reiteration of the fact that tough times will come. But our part is, verse 11, Hold, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. That has been the challenge for God's people called out as part of his ecclesia, part of his called out ones through the histories, through history, through the ages. 
You know, as Paul and others persecuted the church, we read about this in, in Acts. Some, 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 were, some died when were cast into prison, and some spread the gospel. The gospel spread as a result of Paul's persecution. Others turned aside as a result of that persecution. Others turned aside as a result of other persecution through, through the years. So, let's go to Daniel chapter 2. I challenge you to think about dangerous snares in our perilous times today. Because while we may not be confronted with the physical challenges that are in the future, we are confronted with the spiritual challenges, brethren. And we need to be, be aware that the, the, the snares are set for us. The snares are in the ground, you might say. They're in our path. Everywhere we turn, every which way we walk, the snares are there for us. All we have to do is turn the radio on. All we have to do is turn the television or Internet on. All we have to do is literally listen to the conversations around us. And the snares are set. One, to get caught up in the, in the, the flurry of frustration and antagonism. Christ set us a very good example. And I, I hope by taking a, a little bit of time to go through, I hope you am I you know, cumbersome way, you've seen a little bit of the environment in, in which Christ taught. Frankly, I think it's a, a mirror image of our day today. Honestly, if you think about it, I mean, it was a, also a very contentious time, and yet he stuck to his guns, and he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If we can be able to take on that mindset, brethren, then we won't get caught up in the details. If we can be able to focus our attention on what we have, Remember what we've been given and, and hold, hold fast to that message and to those who have taught it. Daniel chapter 2. We see the big picture here that it won't be long before our hope returns to this earth. Daniel chapter 2. We read of this image that was revealed to Nebuchadnezzar. But I just want to come to the end of it where we, we focus on What's going to happen at the end? The hope that's given to us for a focus point beyond all the, 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 the spiritual challenges of our day. We see verse 41. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom, we're reading about, again, the end of the age, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. And you saw, as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will finally set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Now, that is our destiny. That is our goal point. That should be fixed in our mind. And we should not allow anything to, to, to make that go out of focus. He says, verse 44, which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. That's our promise. That's our hope. And that should keep us focused as we confront dangerous snares in perilous times.